Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Second Chance Podcast. I've been away filming a new Netflix series, so I haven't been able to record any new episodes for the last couple of weeks. And although I've still got more of my Netflix series to shoot, I will endeavour to record more interviews for this podcast whenever I can. So please stick with me. I'm also excited to share with you the fact I will soon be recording a video version of this podcast, so watch this space for further notice. In this episode... I'm chatting to Neil Bonner, a journalist and film director. I met Neil on one of my recent Netflix shoots. Over a beer, he shared with me his story. Neil was in Indonesia filming a documentary about piracy when he ran into serious trouble with the authorities. Listen to his story. Let's just let's start from the beginning because I don't know. I'm I'm going off of the back that you know we've been brought together to do a Netflix series, mm. and being brought together to do the Netflix series brings me to the fact that you yourself had been caught up in the situation. So let's start at the beginning. Where were you? What were you about to do when things went wrong? I was in Southeast Asia making a documentary about piracy uh, in the Malacca Strait, which is um, a shipping lane between Singapore and Indonesia. We're basically making a 360 documentary on the side of the criminals and on the side of uh, of the uh, sort of police and, and, and military authorities. And so we'd been filming around the area, and it was about black market trades of pirates stealing marine oil from bunker ships, which are kind of floating petrol stations at sea for the big cargo ships. And what happens is the pirates, um, they commandeer one of these bunker ships, and then they'll drain the oil, and then they sell the oil. So we'd been in the region for three weeks, and we'd been filming with the sort of head of the crime network in Singapore, uh, the middleman in uh, Malaysia and the 
the the marines the, who were sort of um, guarding the waters. We went out on patrol with those guys. And then our final leg of the filming trip was in Indonesia. And the Indonesians are the kind of foot soldiers, the pirates who actually do the hijack. Now, we'd planned to film with the Indonesians, and we put an applic- uh, the Indonesian pirates, and we put an application to film with the Indonesian Navy, who are obviously patrolling the waters in collaboration with the uh, Malaysian Marines. But to film, and we, you know, we had a visa application in, which was pending, but to film with the pirates and to protect our sources, we had to go in under um, tourist visas because um, we were we were to have a chaperone if once we you know got our journalist visas to go in. So we had to go in on tourist visas. But you were hoping to get the. Uh, the the I visas or whatever. Yeah, the, yeah, we we had our whole application in. It was all pending. We were waiting for that to go through any day. But the plan was to go in on our tourist visas for five days, do a recce, and then film a little bit with the pirates who you know who are actually doing the criminal activity, which we, we wouldn't have been able to do on our visas to tell their side of the story. And so we'd been in for a few days we'd been in for sort of four or five days we were you know we'd stripped down our kit so we were a sort of tourist kit quite small cameras and we'd uncovered which probably wouldn't have made the film because it wasn't hardcore journalism um, we uncovered a lot of needy complicity in the illegal activity um, and the one of the final nights we were there before we were due back to go to Malaysia before coming in officially as journalists we filmed with the pirates at sea at night where they talked us through how they board the ships, how they uh, hijack the ships. Um, so there we were, out in the waters, in the ocean, at the sea. So you were doing what you weren't supposed to be doing on your tourist visas? Yeah, yeah. But this yeah. was part of your recce? Yeah, part of our recce and, and to protect our sources, to protect those guys. You know, we couldn't put them in a position where they... And just to be clear, what, 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 when you say recce, what do you mean by recce? Uh, we're looking at locations we're going to shoot, what we're going to film, the kind of setups we're going to do, um, just getting a lay of the land... You know, a lot of filming is, is you know, you go in there, you recce first, you find your personalities, you understand the story, and then you follow that up with, you know, your, your, your sort of principal filming. Um, and that's what we did, but we also picked up this scene with, uh, with, with, with the pirates at sea. Um, now, before we went, we'd done a lot of due diligence on the risk factor of doing this. And we'd looked at previous cases of journalists getting caught on tourist visas and it's quite common in Indonesia because they're quite strict and quite controlling of of the freedom of of the press of of information Um, and there was cases that were much more uh, controversial should we say um, than ours there was a case of French journalists who who boarded into West Papua which is a a sort of contested region within within Indonesian sovereignty and these journalists never went to jail and, and they were just deported. And there was numerous cases of journalists working on tourist visas and just getting immediately deported. So you thought if it came on top, nothing much would happen? Yeah, we, we, took, we, took, a, you know, we, 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 we took a judgment call that if it went wrong, we would just be deported and probably you know, blacklisted for a, for a certain period of time. And that was, that was how we managed that risk. What we didn't know, I think, is that there was, and probably what we should have known, was there was an underlying sort of power struggle in the government that we feel might have affected our case, where a new president was trying to um, 
sort of open up the country uh, to open up the press, be a bit more free with their information. And the Navy are very, very powerful in Indonesia. They're the old guards, you know, hardliners. Very powerful because, you know, it's, it's a country of 14,000 islands and, you know, there's a lot at stake for them. And it's a country of extreme corruption because of poverty, um, wages for the Navy aren't high. So, you know, as we know, in a lot of places, I can encourage a lot of backhanders and deals on the side. So, yeah, we, we took that judgment call um, and... We were out at sea, and um, before we know it, we just get a series of heavily armed boats descending on us just outside of the harbour. Um, and this is when you were coming back. No, this is when we. So we were out with the pirates at night time filming. Right. And then that's when the the navy descended on us, surrounded us, bright lights, weapons pointing, um, and we were we were arrested on the spot. Who's we? My myself and my colleague uh, Becca. So it was just the two of you? We were the only... There was us two. There was our Indonesian fixer, a local producer. And then there was, uh, I can't remember the number, the seven people that we were filming with in the boat who were talking us through the process of hijacking these uh, sort of floating petrol petrol stations, bunkers, bunker ships. What was it like when the... um the sort of marines if you like or these navy kind of pulled up to the boat did you know what was going to happen did you know they were coming for you no it's quite surreal i mean you know i've done a lot of work in remote places conflict zones post-conflict zones so i wasn't sort of super scared i don't think we were both quite calm i don't think we and we didn't know what was going to sort of evolve from it we thought it was something that we could kind of pacify or talk our way out of as we have to do in a lot of places (laughs) and you know they were you know once we got over the original sort of like you know guns pointing they towed us back to the harbour um it was quite a relaxed environment you know they were quite kind to us you know we had this moment where they wanted to take some evidence photos but but it was too dark so I lit the scene for them with some some lighting gear that I had in my camera bag Um, and I, you know, at that point, it very much felt like within a day or two, this would be sorted and would most likely be deported. But what happened was they took our memory cards from our cameras, sent them back to Jakarta, um, because the next day for 24 hours we were being questioned in the, the Navy base about what we'd been doing, what were our activities, um, what was our reason for being there, just a normal kind of sort of police, military sort of questioning. And was you honest? Was you truthful about why you were there and what you were doing at this yeah, point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, you know, we, 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 they knew what our, what our story was, what we were doing. What we did do was protect the guys that were filming. And we told them that they were actors filming a reconstruction, um, which meant that they didn't get arrested, which meant that they didn't get questioned. And These were, are the pirates on the yeah, boat. Yeah, and they were released. We had a, you know, we both considered it to be a duty of care to our sources to uh, at least protect them since we'd put them in that situation and ask them to sort of reveal that part of the the uh, the story, as it were. But yeah, we were in. So we were in the we we were in the uh, the navy base day of questioning. We went back to the hotel, which kind of felt like a, a, a kind of normal formality. And then the footage got sent to Carter, kind of ruffled a few feathers, um, we believe. And 
the next day things really started to escalate we were then sent to uh, a police station where we were questioned on and off for a couple of days sleeping in the sleeping on the couch in, in the police station not in a police cell not yet not yet um, had they confiscated your passport so you could yeah they confiscated everything um, fortunately we, we we did have a, a hard drive <clears throat> which they never got eyes on which had a lot of the Navy complicit which had a lot of the Navy evidence which through the next few weeks we were able to smuggle out the country which we feel if they'd have got hold of that that could have really escalated our mm-hmm. situation so that was something in the back of our minds and um but yeah, it did it. we were in the police station, we were being questioned. I mean, we were questioned numerous times by different departments over the coming weeks. The police station was because we were infringing our visa. Now that can carry a sentence, uh, if it's criminal, that can carry a sentence up to five years. But they were like throwing state security charges at us, which could carry a sentence up to 12 years. So they weren't necessarily interested in what you were doing on the boat at this point. They were more interested in you not having the right visas to be a film crew. I think that's how they framed it, yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, as, as, we'd, as our research had shown, is that uh, most of those cases, are, you know, it's, a, it's an immigration problem. It's for the immigration authorities to deal with, not a police investigation. And we were, we, and they put us into the police investigation, and started throwing around these like quite heavy charges with heavy, heavy tariffs. Um, what, what were they threatening to charge you with? Uh, uh, viol- uh, state security charges. And, and what was the basis of that? Uh, that we compromised it by 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 filming. Uh, Around navy bases, there was right. a navy base. And that's navy bases everywhere. It's Indonesia. It's a series of islands. I can't quite see. You know, six years ago. So you know, it's a bit. Some of the details are a little bit, little bit mm-hmm. uh, lost in time. But um, yeah, they were just. It, it felt quite a heavy-handed sort of scare tactic. And like I said, you know, previously. 24 hours, it didn't feel like it was going to escalate in this way. Were you scared at this point, though? Yeah, very much so. I can remember I was at the police station and I had some money in my pocket and um, and uh, I can remember just, like, slipping outside for a cigarette. I gave this guy some money to go get me some cigarettes. Just some guy who was milling around and I can remember smoking it and thinking, fuck, like, how long am I going to be here for? absolutely no idea but it definitely started to feel much more serious very very quickly were you able to talk with your colleague during this whole period or had you been separated no we'd yeah this was something that we were very good at communicating with each other we'd known each other a long time prior to working together i mean later on down the line we had three days of immigration investigations and we were one by one but we still had our phones and we were just like confirming and she was sort of staggered questioning I was always in first as the sort of male and um, I would just be texting her whilst they, whilst they, they, were, whilst they were questioning me just making sure that we were, we were corroborated and that everything lined up you know not, mm. just not to create any more doubt in their minds so yeah we, we were very supportive of each other throughout the whole you know sort of months that we ended up stuck there after the police they sort of soon decided to stick us in hotel arrest so we were, we were put in a hotel which we couldn't leave and just left. No, sorry, that's not right. We were actually sent to immigration cells first. So we were handed over from the police to the immigration department. 
it felt like that 12-year sort of state security tariff, uh, sort of idea had sort of dropped off a cliff. Mm-hmm. And now we were dealing with the immigration. Um, and that's when we transferred into hotel arrest, um, where we couldn't leave the hotel. There was a, an immigration officer with a room next door to us. Um, and we were sort of stuck in a hotel. And that's how it was for the next six six to seven weeks. Were you questioned during this time? Yeah, yeah. so they, they gave us no... You know, we, we'd obviously now set ourselves up with, for, through our production company, we had uh, a local lawyer from the island, and then we had a sort of uh, quite a important lawyer, shall we say, in the, in the capital, Jakarta, because that's where the government was, and then we had the local guy dealing with all the kind of local, local issues. Um, so we'd set up with our lawyers, and then we were stuck in the hotel just stewing it over, provide they, you know, they gave us no information, they just, you know, sit and wait. So you hadn't been charged with anything, mm-hmm. you were just detained while they carried out an investigation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that went on for, uh, it must have been three weeks, just sat there stewing before they didn't, you know, they didn't inform us anything. And then that's when the immigration department, you know, pretty much turned up and said, you're going to be questioned. And we were, we had like, I think it was maybe two sessions, two or three sessions of like 12 hours of questioning, pretty much going over the same ground. But like I said, we were, we were, Staggered when we were doing it, doing it individually, and um, and uh, and just like corroborating. But we'd already, you know, sat down in the hotel and just nailed our story between us, and just being like, "This, this happened. This happened. This happened," um, to make sure it was tight. We would, we were practicing questioning each other to see what it was like, you know, to you know, to not be flustered, to not kind of be cornered by them to sort of undo some of the information that you've given. What do you think they were trying to get out of you then? Well, I mean, what were you so concerned about? Because on the face of it, you were there on tourist visas, you went on a little recce, did a little bit of filming. What was you most worried about at this point, that they would discover that could turn things nasty? Because we didn't tell them everything. There was a lot we didn't tell. You know, there was a lot of stuff on our hard drive which showed illegal Navy activity, which we didn't want, because we knew the Navy were heavily involved in this. You know, there was newspapers reports coming out in the, in the national newspapers, really, you know, sound bites from the Navy, you know, trying to be hardline uh, about what, what should happen to us. And you had information. Like and that we had all that information. So Even though that wasn't your story. No, but, we, but, you know, in the process of filming, you know, we, we could film like 40 hours and we make one. So there's a lot of material, and it was probably too hardline for what we wanted this for this film. But yeah, we, we were withholding information for sure, um, and we didn't want them to get a sense that we were and that we knew more than we knew, because we knew that if they found out what we actually were aware of and had found out, then that would escalate our case, um, because the Navy would then be worried. Um, and that's when it, it was very much a kind of sort of political thing. Um, it was the Navy who were pressing very, very hard for us to serve time and pressing very, very hard for us not to be deported as previous journalists had done. They wanted you to be punished for yeah. filming in and around their bases. Yeah. You were kept in the hotel for three to four weeks or a bit more. Yeah. What Were you eventually released from the hotel? No, so we were, we were you know, in the hotel and again, nothing happened, no charges had come. And then after about, I think it must have been about six weeks in the hotel, we were moved to a different hotel. We, um, you know, we, 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 we stayed there. We still didn't know what was going on. You know, we, you know, we had, my brother was working in Singapore. He came over to, to see me. Becca had a friend come over. You know, we allowed people to come in. 
we never left the hotel. The guards sort of disappeared a bit, so we were we weren't heavily monitored. But we obviously never left the hotel. We didn't know who was watching. Um, any violation of that, we thought, you know, I mean, gosh, I was even we were even exploring extraction. You know, I have old military contacts who were looking at extracting extracting us, and uh, you know, what would be the fees for that? Had you not reached out to the British Embassy consulate? Yeah, we did, and they, they we reached out to the FCO pretty immediate, and um, they made just a constant series of errors in our case that jeopardised us. Um, one detail being that when you're arrested as a foreign national you inform your embassy which we did immediately and what they should do is send an official document to the government to say that we we are aware of this case and we have eyes on this case mm. the FCO delayed that letter by five weeks and that was one of the numerous cases where they compromised our safety um, not only in the sort of pre-prison period but when we were actually sent to prison um, so we were in hotel arrest and then our, our Jakarta lawyer informed us that we were soon to be sent to prison um, and we had a, about 10 days uh, of time to kind of prepare for that, if you will. So Even told, though you see you were going to prison on remand yeah. awaiting any further action. Yeah, yeah. What, why? What, 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 what turned from the hotel to this, this idea of you going to prison? We never got to the bottom of that. You know, there was clearly a lack of, you know, the FCO stuff where it felt like we were sort of abandoned. So, like, they didn't, you know, they didn't really have... Indonesia didn't really have strict eyes from, you know, a foreign a foreign government, but they gave no reason. They just said... I, and again, if I can remember correctly, you know, from, from the inside track from our lawyers, it was like, you know, this is what the Navy are pressing for. They want you to be punished. So 10 days later, you were sent to prison? Sent to prison, yeah. And where were you in Indonesia at this point? I was on the island, we were on the island of Batam, which is this small island, uh, very, it's very clear, you can see the Singaporean skyline from the island, um, and it's Pirate Island, it's where a lot of the pirates live who do all that illegal activity. Um, small island, not too big, um, and on the island is a place called the Rutan, which is the prison, which is a sort of... It's a mixture of a remand prison, uh, a prison for uh, sentences of five years and less, and also it had a narcotics sort of wing, which they're serving like super long sentences because obviously you know, any narcotics in Indonesia is you know it's, it's either a death sentence or long sentences. Um, so yeah, we, we were sent. We were sent to the same prison. There was a if, there was a population of about seven hundred male inmates in there, and then. That was in like these two blocks, and then and the whole sort of prison was was based around this courtyard, um, and at the end were the two blocks, um, and on this courtyard was a, was the female wing as well of around forty, and they all lived together in in one room of uh, of forty inmates. It was interesting because I I've never felt anxiety like it in that two weeks before when I was preparing to go to prison. Did you think it would happen? Yeah. Yeah, knew it was going to happen, but I was kind of preparing. I was preparing like things like how my family can sort of appeal, what they, or you know, my, all my friends back home, what they could do, but also preparing myself sort of mentally. And in that process, you know, reading of you know sort of foreigners in Indonesian prisons, I pretty much had come to the conclusion that you know the first two weeks of that experience, I was going to have to fight 
and I was going to have to probably be attacked and you know I was going to have to put myself in a position where I couldn't be walked over but you have to get that balance right you know um, to kind of stand your ground um, fortunately I've been in the uh, I'm, I'm not particularly like sort of big person I climb a lot <laughs> but I had worked out you're not a boxer no I'm not a boxer I'm not a boxer I've got two older brothers though so I, I do have a you know youth of fighting now but um, you know I'd worked out in the gym just to kill time in, in, um, so you know I felt in the right shape um, but I, yeah I'd mentally prepared myself you know to get shanked with some you know some blade that was probably covered in het B or something or, and that was what I was expecting and then it was interesting because the day came when we meant to be transferred and we were delayed by a day or two and, and I was just like oh, I was ready I was ready my game face was ready and then it was just like and it was just like, can we fucking do this? Get me in there. Yeah, you know, it was the idea, the anticipation is probably worse than the reality. And like, at the end of the day, we were finally imprisoned. I was just like, I was raring for it. Just get me in there, you know. And then, uh, yeah, I remember we were transferred at night time, put in the cell at seven o'clock at night. What was it like the moment you walked into that prison as a prisoner, as opposed to a journalist? I mean, the first thing you look at is just the state of this place. You know, it was, it was just like disgusting. It was a lot of faces, a lot of inmates, a lot of eyes on you. You know, I was the only non-Southeast Asian male in that prison. Same for Becky, as a female in the prison in that section. I so I stood out like a sore thumb. And uh, you know, I was given a mat, carried it, walked into the cell. You know, I can walk in the cell and it's like, they call it the VIP cell for like vulnerables or, or those who, would, who could pay to be in there, had a bit of money. Um, so you'd have like coppers in there, bank coppers in there and stuff. And the way it worked out was uh, we were on the bottom floor and then um, there was like cells above it and around that had eyes on us. Um, so yeah, I walked in um, with my mat and... Uh, yeah, the, I looked, looked right, and I was like, "All right, that's that's where we wash." And it was just a trough, like a like a like a horse's trough, with you know holes in the ground. Everything was just concrete and filthy. Although we we'd always clean the cell, um, but it was just one of these places you can't get clean. Um, and you know, it's yeah, it's totally in disrepair. You could see the cells above and around, which were clearly like overcrowded. You know, there was built for nine people, and there was often twenty-two in there. Um, people hanging out of bars. You know, I come in, cheers. You know, quite intimidating atmosphere. And uh, you know, I was like, that was their reaction to you. They yeah. kind of they didn't sort of do the cock thing and and strut their stuff. They cheered your it cheered me as in an intimidating cheer rather than a you know like really <laughs> wasn't a welcome. Well, it didn't feel like a welcome. Didn't feel like a welcome, and but I was I, I was quite I don't know immediately this guy who had a little bit of English he um, used to work in tourism on one of the islands uh, and sort of latched onto me and he ended up being my my buddy um, and uh, straight away he sort of I, I was actually given this older guy who didn't have much English and he was like the sort of cell sort of elder and you know he told me where I you know where I can put my bedding. Um, and what you have is you have your mat and you have a box and your belongings going a sort of perspex plastic box and that's you and then um, you know in the day that cell becomes a kind of common room from the cells above for the way those who, who can pay the guards to get out of their cell 
which had its own sort of threats and 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 and, and things because that sort of comfort of your cell and the cellmates that you make friends with then becomes a different place in the day because any inmate from 700 inmates can come down and, and meet me, as it were. How did you adapt in the first few days? I mean, you say you met this guy who spoke a bit of English mm. who became your kind of chaperone or your buddy. Yeah. But how did you adapt to that environment? Even though you prepared yourself for being shanked and yeah. you know building your muscles in order to protect yourself, but how did you adapt in those first few days? Because you're in this foreign environment, you're in a foreign country, but you're also in prison, mm. and no mm. doubt, whatever we think about prisoners, there's always... A dangerous one or, or a, mm. a, an unstable one and being a westerner in a place where you stood out it must have been quite tricky yeah I mean I kind of went in with a strategy of sort of first make myself um, make myself feel safe um, or as much as I had control of that and then look for comfort after that now the first few days was about being being safe and sort of ingratiating myself with the inmates and um, leaving my ego at the door. You know, one of the challenges was non-verbal communication. You know, we didn't have a shared language, um, no one apart from my, my buddy who could get by with English. So fortunately, I've done a lot of travel around the world and, and, and I'm able to build relationships with people just through body language, through smiles. Um, and I diffused a lot of quite spicy situations through through making a gag out of it. Or, or, or kind of like finding a sort of humorous way out of it, but without losing face or, you know, or without sort of looking weak. And that was like, you know, the first sort of few days. And, you know, I had this guy who had English, so I could start to get out my story a bit, why I was there. You know, I mean, they didn't know what I was in there for. You know, or, you know, it could have been a horrific crime and that could have put me in, you know, so I really wanted to get my crime as it were out you know I'm a journalist I'm in, in here on a visa violation which everyone thought was totally bonkers and that was like the first few days you know understanding understanding you know the rhythms of the prison the the, the schedule understanding the faces who are the groups who are the who are the people I should be wary of where do they reside what are their problems and just doing a sort of uh, a sort of layer of the land as it were and, and seeing how I can fit into that without sort of getting in the way. How did your colleague cope? It was... Uh, she, she... Do you know what? We, there's different times through this whole process where you, either of us were, were the strength. And she was the strength going in before prison. Her sister was a lawyer and we were doing... You know, she was the... the she was really leading the way on, 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 on our process and maintaining sort of positivity and... And then it sort of flipped, and she quite she suffered a lot in there in the environment. First time I saw her was the next morning after we got in. We went in at the same time. We went our separate ways. You know, didn't know when I'd see her again because I didn't know anything about the routine. And then in the morning, once you're released from your cell, the first thing they did is sort of have a yard mass exercise where, you know, one of the female prisoners is on a box and she's, you know, everyone's doing star jumps and box jumps and all sorts of stuff. And I saw Becky through, they were behind, the females behind a cage and the males were in front and they were all doing it and it was one of the most, like, weirdest sights, you know, you, know, you can imagine. So even though you were in the same courtyard, you were separated Separate. by fence? Yeah, yeah. So you couldn't interact with them physically? No, no, no not yet. Not yet? Not yet. 
Um, and yeah, I can remember looking at her and, you know, and we just looked at each other and that was like immediate comfort, you know, for, for her and for me, you know, this has been, you know, we've been, this is the only person in the world who knew what we were going through and we shared every sort of emotional vulnerability up to that point. And I think, and that was the theme, we would always find ways to communicate uh, whether we were getting the sort of the inmates who had freedom to move around we'd pass little messages to each other on little slips of paper messages that often didn't say much but were just little moments of positivity you know we were a real source of strength for each other um but yeah i remember that look and we were like what the fuck is this why where are we you know and that was something that dominated my thoughts quite a lot i was just like i'm just a I'm just a lad from Lincoln. <laughs> what am I doing in this prison on you know on the other side of the world? And yeah, so we we yeah you know, I remember that moment when we could get eyes on each other, and that was that was like you know we would be there for each other and help each other out. You you, you met this buddy who spoke a bit of English, so mm. he helped you navigate your way around the system. How long were you in the prison for? It's about two and a half months. Two and a half months. Mm. Yeah, because we um, ultimately you know soon after prison or. I can't remember, it might just be in the day or the day before, we were actually charged, criminal charge of violation of visa. And, yeah, that's with the, the five-year tariff max. And um, and so then we went through a court case, a six-week court case. Oh, right. So you did get charged. Got charged. And you faced trial. Faced trial, yeah. And in two and a half months you went to trial. Yeah, it was like the court case we didn't start for, you know, it was like maybe, what, a month after being in prison. And we would do one session a week for six weeks. Six sessions overall. Right, so um, one you'd appear in court yeah. once a week yeah. and you were fighting the the charges. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was no, you know, we put forward a case which was like, you know, but it was pointless. It was, you know, it didn't matter. They, just, they were just going to like, it, they were going to charge, they were going to find us guilty, but what it was was like, how long are they going to sentence us for? So just remind me, what were you accused of? Uh, a violation of visa. Article, I can't remember what article it was, but it was violation of visa. But that charge was a lot less than what you could have faced in terms of if they found what was on your yeah, hard drive. Yeah, I think so. I think so. State we can't security. Be, yeah, we can't be sure, but yeah, there could have been much. It could have been, you know, more heavy duty for sure. Did you plead not guilty? Uh, yeah, I can't remember actually. Um, yeah, because we put forward a case where we were, we were, we were sort of saying, you know, we we're on recce and and, um, and we were, you know, filming on these small cameras and we were, you know, shooting a reconstruction. So you're just gathering content. Gathering content, yeah. Yeah, so, but, we, you know, we went through this trial and it didn't really matter. We were always going to be found guilty. But it was um, the way that their system works is on the penultimate session, which, you know, we'd been in prison now for two months and a few weeks and a week. And the penultimate session is what happens is the prosecutor puts forward their sentencing. Now, if the judge gives you less than half of that sentencing, then you go into an automatic retrial. And that was our fear, is that we were just going to get sucked into this appeals process and we didn't know how long that would play out. So it, that was part of our, our, our worry, was we could just be stuck in an appeals process. We not, might not get another retrial for six months, eight months, a year. And we just didn't know. So it was literally up until three days before we were released where we still had no idea... How long are we going to be in there for? What did the prosecution put forward as a sentence? Put forward, basically, so we'd accumulated time served in hotel arrest, which, because it was hotel arrest, it was like 
whereas prison would be one day, it was like three days to one in, in hotel arrest. So we'd accumulate that time. Then we'd accumulate, accumulated the time in prison. And uh, we were found guilty and sentenced. And, you know, we were like there waiting to be sentenced. And it was like, oh, we're trying to do the math. <laughs> like, how are we going to, what's going to happen? And, um, and we had to serve three more days after the sentencing. Uh, so you went back to prison, or you, you went back to prison, done those three days. Yeah, and then was released. You walked out of the prison? Walked out of the prison, but then we had to wait for a deportation, so we were put up in a hotel for, for five, five days, which I think was really helpful for us to sort of decompress before launching back to the UK. And that was the end of the case? That was the end of it, yeah. Five days later, you're on a plane flying back to England? Yeah, yeah. I saw the video not too long ago of, mm. of your being greeted by your mother and your colleague being greeted by family members very emotional it was and it got a bit more because uh, yeah it was super emotional you know it was like you know you, I think my, I've I've worked in a lot of dangerous places over the years and I know my mum's always worried like as any mother would and and she, you know, she's always been very proud of the work that I've done, and and but you know, worries uh, a lot. And this was the first time that something had really gone south. Um, and I know why. I, you know, I knew I put it through. You know, I, I had one way communication with her in the prison. I we got access to our phones every few days for about twenty minutes. And what we do is I would write, I I would write a diary, I'd write letters, take pictures of them, and send that communication that way. So I was keeping her informed and keeping certain things away from her to, to make sure she knew I was okay and keep her calm. But unfortunately, whilst I was in prison, my, uh, my father got very ill um, and died a couple of weeks after I got out and he never saw me properly. He was, he was in a sort of semi-coma and was quite fucked up on medication, so he never got to see me free properly or, or out, but he knew I got out. That's such a shame. What was the lasting effect? What effect did it have on you? Because you've just gone through quite a traumatic experience mm. for, for, for all it's worth. You know, we journalists go out into these locations. We know the risks and the threats that we face in these hostile places, but we never expect things to go as south as what happened to you. How did you cope when you got back to the UK? Because, you, you know, you're elated, you're back, emotions are running high. What, what lasting effect did that whole experience have on you in the early months after yeah, you got back? Um, I mean, you know, the immediate thing was, you know, it was always this thought throughout the whole process was, I have no control over my life anymore. Someone else has control over my life and they have their own motivations for what they want to do with me. And that was something quite hard to deal with. Suddenly facing freedom, you know, even the hotel arrest was like quite, quite hard to deal with you are restricted when everyone anyone restricts you when everyone takes away your freedom to move it has quite a psychological effect regardless of the environment that you're in and um, I suppose people can feel a little bit of that with the whole lockdown, lockdown yeah, absolutely yeah you know, you, yeah mm-hmm. I mean I think in lockdown you kind of felt there was a sense that everyone was going through it and that mm-hmm. was quite helpful mm-hmm. Um, but when you feel like your life is being taken away from you, and, and the, you know, and there's a, a, a decision that someone else is, like I said, it's their own motivation for what they're doing for whatever reason, that's quite a hard thing to deal with. And and also the practical thing, I can remember when I got back, I I, I got back to my my flat, which I I, I was living in a flat share, and yeah, I'd have to psych myself up for a few hours to go visit the corner shop to pick up something that I'd done a million times before 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 I'd been there. You know, it was this idea that I had the freedom to move again. And I found that 
it took a few weeks to get, kind of get over that sort of idea that I could move and I wasn't restricted and you know I didn't have to look what shake my shoulder all the time like I was having to that sense of you know that sense of alertness that you have to deal with constantly is suddenly relieved but you've still got it and I, I would say the sort of long-term residual that I deal with now is uh, I never used to suffer anxiety and every so often I suffer it and I and it manifests in a very physical way in the gut of my stomach and the minute I feel that it t- and the only the time I felt the anxiety was not in the prison it was the, the 10 days before and it takes me right back to that point every time I you know I get that anxiety I'm right back there and I and the triggers are different you know it might you know it might be a, a you know difficult emotional thing with a partner that causes anxiety and and, um, and that always transports me back to that moment in time and how are you managing that now uh, you know time's passed um, one thing I wanted to definitely wanted to do is get back on the wagon with work and then over the sort of preceding few years I was spending a lot of time in the Middle East as the sort of sort of war with ISIS was ongoing and I just I felt this you know I, I'd just seen like in the prison a hotbed of human rights abuses my friends being extorted by the guards by the governor um, you know just you know, a lot of people in that prison, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's, they're there because of poverty, of socioeconomic situations. Um, you know, my friend August, I've got a tattoo that I remember him by, uh, who, who I met on the first night. You know, he, his, his wife had died of cancer, he had a newborn baby, and he was accused of stealing a motorbike and got nine months, you know. And he was let out of prison and his island that he lived on was way far away he needed a flight to get there he's let out of the prison with no money what, do you, what, what happens next you know how does he get back he either begs how do you beg a few hundred pounds to get a flight back and you wonder why they go on to commit a crime okay. and end up back in prison because they commit find another themselves yeah. so tell me about that tattoo so I go, it's a little red band that I have around my left wrist and um, August you know he, he was my, the first guy I met he, he was my guide he sort of like introduced me to people we ate together with a group you know um, you know obviously I was a wealthy inmate because I did have some money so I sat with a group and the prison food was like you know didn't have the nutritional value it had maggots in it had all sorts of crap you know the guards were stealing a lot of the, the budget that was given for the, for the prison food so you could upgrade your food with money so I would upgrade I'd share it with my friends and we'd, we'd eat together every night and, and August we'd play chess we'd play ping pong I, uh, we'd talk for hours and hours every night over tea um, and you know he became a really close friend you know camaraderie like you can't you, know, you can't get anywhere else and he was released before me after serving his time he used to wear this and we said that we had this quite emotional goodbye and uh, he, um, he used to wear this red band you know just like you know one of those sort of help for hero bands you know the rubber bands that are quite cheap and, uh, but you know he always wore it and I went back to my bed and there it was on my pillow so I put it on and I, you know it stayed on my wrist for two years before it broke and, and then I thought the only way to sort of remember him remember him and remember the experience was to sort of get a replacement red band so you've got a red tattoo around your left wrist mm, yeah to remind you of that experience to remind me of not necessarily the experience but the friendships you know I, 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 I don't know do I say that Agus saved my life probably not did he make my life bearable in there? Yeah, for sure. And I think about the other friendships that I had. You know, I had this, like, gangster who lived next door to me, scary-looking guy. And, like, 
you know, he wasn't, you know, you know we, we, I, I learned a few words of Bahasa to the local language to kind of get by. He, we like, he was quite weird and frosty with me to begin with, and, and Otong was his name. And um, over time, you know, we were, we were sitting in the eating group, and he was quite wary of me, of this, you know, he's this guy. And then over time, he was like my protector. And like, someone would come over shouting Bahasa at me, and he would just give them the death stare. And he was from a quite a, quite a famous gangster family on the island, and they were just off. Um, so you know, you kind of you, and I, that probably happened before I even recognised it. And then when I started recognising it, but you know, I would always like after this frosty sort of weird reception when we first met, and over the few days it was a bit like, oh god, he's quite scary. You know, you suddenly develop this like communi- really nice communication and friendship, even though we can't be down a word for each mm. other. Um, so, yeah, I think the Red Band is very much a sort of, like, it's about those friendships and, you know, what they gave me. And, and I hope that I gave something for them too, you know. What's the lesson learnt, Neil? Is there a lesson learnt here? What did you learn from it? What can you pass on from it? I mean, on a practical level, I definitely thought that as a journalist that I would be offered more protection by the British government by the FCO and that's something that I look back on previous things where we'd be I've been in Syria Afghan Iraq and I'm thinking uh, have they got my back and this experience made me believe no no I don't the FCO's role has changed over the years and what it is now is merely a, a kind of you know it's a it's a, it's a sort of building um, international uh, economic relationships and journalists doing stuff and uh, compromises that um, so that's that's been a lesson on that front and I think um, you know would I do you know would I go somewhere again and do something similar yeah if I thought that there was a story that needed to be told maybe maybe this one wasn't as important as I sort of made it be maybe I didn't need to take that risk but we've evaluated the risk and we thought you know it would just be deportation but yeah no the lesson I'd learned mm, just you know, I think the one thing that got me through, and I, I believe it, you know, got Becca through, was like, you know, I think we are people with compassion and people with empathy, and and regardless of if you can communicate with people, that's really that's a foundation of, of building friendships. And if you're kind to people and they're kind to you, you look out for people and they look out for you. That can get you through some of the, you know, the darkest experiences or the most difficult or dangerous. And if you was to take one. I know you say you made some friends and you've got some memories and that experience drives you through the journalism that you do today and you've just said you take the risk again if you had to for a story which is, is important, isn't it, especially for investigative journalists or documentary journalists and people like you. Does it scare you? Does it scare you to think that you could end up in a similar situation somewhere else in the world if you don't get the visa you should have to do what you need to do yeah I th- yeah of course of course you know i don't think i i would be foolish and naive not to not to be worried you know um you know i suppose moving forward i my my due diligence on the decisions we make is is, is more thorough i evaluate the risks and sometimes those risks aren't so overt um, you don't know what's going on culturally, politically behind the scenes that can impact on on how your actions are received or processed. So yeah, I you know I, I it hasn't scared me enough not to kind of pursue this this career or, or or the work that you know I do or we do. 
but yeah I, 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 I don't want to put my, my mum through that again you know? mm-hmm. I don't want to put my friends through that again my family through that again but I, there was a point where you know I, I, I don't do a huge amount of, just sort of human rights stuff but you know it's always sort of tinged in a lot of the work that we do but you know I felt a sense of duty as well to the people that you know I met in there who were you know like getting beaten up in the prison you know like a week after we left the prison there was this uh, nine prisoners escaped and I need to fact check this but they were most of them were caught and one of them was killed during interrogation you know this is the kind of conditions they're in should that be happening of course it shouldn't and I think it the experience drives me to like want to show those stories and I'm not a hardcore journalist in terms of how I present the information. I do it through documentary, but it's, like I said, it's like making that stuff accessible to hopefully people who wouldn't normally care. What about the... Finally, for me, I mean, what, what about the responsibility on you then? Because you took the risk, mm. you did your due diligence, but you still took the risk of going in without the right documents, if you like. So, you know, there's a bit of this story that says the authorities were not wrong in detaining you and maybe punishing you for working in a country as a journalist when you didn't have the right pieces of paper. It could have been harder, it may have been and should have been maybe less, based on experience. So what responsibility do you take then for for bringing this situation on yourselves? Yeah, I mean, you know, we put ourselves in the firing line, but I think that's... The frustration for me is that it wasn't purely a case of an immigration case, you know, because if it was, barely anyone's been tried under a criminal charge. You know, they've just been deported or, or they've just, you know, told that they've got to leave, you know, or, or mm. they can't come back or whatever. Mm. And to know, to, to, to firmly believe, I, say, I, I should say, that this was politically motivated, sort of... In a way, I you know maybe this is foolish to say, but it kind of I, I kind of feel that sort of absor- absolves me from some of that decision making. But yeah, that's tinged with guilt for the for the, for the you know the sacrifices and and the emotional pressures that you put the people who loved you through. When you say politically motivated, do you mean that when you were first arrested and the the navy were targeting you, you were being kind of falsely accused of breaching security. Yeah, they, it was just this, just knowing that the Navy were pushing hard and using a lot of their clout to, to, to turn the screw on us because the Navy are doing a lot of illegal stuff, you know? They're, they're involved in it. Mm. And to, to to be turning to to then you know their reaction to turn the screw on us to make sure that we receive punishment... Yeah, that's you know that's that's something that frustrates me, and and you know, yeah, according to the sort of sort of legislature or legislation, we committed a crime, but the precedent for that was deportation. So you were harshly punished. Yeah, very harshly punished. You know, this happens all around the world, more so for local journalists than you know. We still had a, a you know a Western face. Um, from you know a good man that uh, once was you know had a, had a great amount of diplomatic power, and you know in other places you know around the world local journalists are doing similar things, and, you know can end up locked away for years. What would you say to those wannabe journalists who want to go off and do this sort of stuff that you and I do and have been doing for years, 
who put themselves at arm's length, who take the risk, what would your final message be to those wannabe journalists who are listening to this and thinking, well, God, it doesn't seem worth it? What would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like motivation and why you're doing it. I think, you know, it's very easy once you start doing this, you know, it's the classic sort of war correspondent thing where, you know, you do get this incredible adrenaline rush, not necessarily from, you know, bullets going over the, 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 the snap cackle going over your head, but just being in a position where you uh, can get things done, people listen to you, you, you know, you have this privilege of telling a story. Um, and you can sometimes come back to the UK and it's just like, oh wow, just, you know, it's the quiet life and you do miss that adrenaline and, and it's a bit of a cliche, but it's true. But I think it's like be motivated for the right reasons and not let that be, be your primary reason. I don't think you can escape it, but let it not be your primary reason, a desire to tell stories, a desire to hopefully reveal something that, um, that, that you feel we need to understand as a global audience or as a UK audience or wherever you're from. So I think that's one. But also I think you, you've got to understand like, the impact of what you're doing has on other people, not necessarily your friends at home, your family at home, but the people who are helping you on location because you'll leave and you'll go back to your nice place or your, you know, your house, but let's say you're, using a lo- you're, you're working with a local producer or a fixer, like... The impacts it's going to have on them, safety, security, their career, their family, their, you know. And I think you really have to weigh up all of those variables um, to make that decision. And just, yeah, just don't be going home. You don't have to answer this one, but um, the bond that you built with your colleague over the time that you were in prison and under hotel arrest... Have you been able to continue that bond since you came out, you know, that support network with each other? Because only you two know what you went through. Only you two saw each other through that fence and gave each other strength at different points in this journey. Has that survived the test of time? Um, so when we were in prison, we, you know, I mean, we'd known each other loosely as friends for about 10 years uh, through a mutual friend. Not that well, but we'd hang out uh, you know, through her now and again. Um, I mean, obviously, this, this experience brought us very, very close together. You know, she was like, you know, we, we had this like non... We, we could just look at each other and know their emotions, know exactly what they're going through. We can comfort each other with just our eyes, you know. It was, it was a really tight bond. And, and that carried on when we got back for maybe six months. And then we fell out. We had an argument. And sort of, sort of mid-2016 around, or maybe a bit later. And, um, and we met up once about eight months after and, and we haven't spoken since it's a shame yeah no it is it's a it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a deep regret because yeah she's you know time time sort of you know heals your experience but uh, you know having knowing someone who knows like knows you know she knows me in an intimate way that no one else does because of you know how we share this experience I mean actually like you know one of the away from from Becca but one of the one of the, um, I think how I framed it after prison and I think helped me move forward was that I framed it in a way as a life-affirming experience because I kind of evaluated how I dealt with the experience and, you know, you know there were some times where, you know, I was like, fuck, what's going to happen? Or I was super anxious. But throughout the experience, I, I kind of stayed relatively calm and processed things and, and hopefully made some good decisions. Um, and and I've used that going forward, and and 
to be able to put a kind of positive experience on it has helped with the post-processing of it. Um, because, you know, you kind of go through something like that and you develop as an individual, you develop as a person. And knowing that I can stay calm in, in quite high-pressure and sort of volatile situation environment was, was um, yeah, life-affirming and important to feel that way. And, I, you know, I sometimes feel proud that I can say that I dealt with it in a way that I thought was, was OK. Neil, thanks very much for sharing your story. Thank you very much. You should reach out to Becky and see what bridges can yeah. be built after such a long time. Yeah, I know. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, share and follow us on social media at A Reporter on Instagram and Twitter or go to Second Chance by Raphael Rowe on Facebook. This is an independent podcast and we rely on your support to keep it going. If you would like to donate or sponsor this show, go to the donation link or please get in touch via email or the Raphael Rowe website. This helps us keep the podcast moving forward. If you think you know someone with something to share on the podcast, please get in touch via social media, email or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. This episode was produced by Daryl Johnson, Sophie Warner and me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.